Returning to Base, a MechWarrior Living Legends podcast. This week's episode is sort of a continuation of last week's episode on game meta. Last time we talked about the meta in game modes like Solaris Arena, Team Solaris Arena, and in organized matches. Today, we will be talking about terrain control in mostly public games and a little bit about terrain control in organized matches as well. Our guests are the same as last week. We have Kidzen, Direwolf, and Liko. And as always, I am Warlord Kentax, your host. So without further ado, here it is. Alright, so, uh, terrain control. Uh, what is it? Terrain control is the main game mode of MechWarrior Living Legends. Uh, as the name implies, your goal is to control the objectives which are scattered throughout the terrain of a given map. Usually there are three to five objectives. Sometimes there are more and sometimes there are less or as few as one on like a King of the Hill style map. Um, in a public game, uh, there's a pretty narrow selection of official maps and unofficial maps, which have received a lot of care over the years. Um, and in organized play, there's a much wider variety uh, because uh, the player base is a bit more familiar with them. But um, there, uh, most of the time, the, uh, the flow is pretty similar. You start at your main base, you go out into the map, capture objectives, and um, you have a bit of a back and forth between the teams as one team pushes into the other's territory and either captures their objectives or fails, retreats, and gets counter-pushed. And you go back and forth. You earn C-bills by capturing the objectives uh, in addition to dealing damage and getting kills. So over time, you get bigger. And uh, as you get into bigger and more powerful units, the dynamics can sort of evolve to where, uh, you know, as I'm sure everyone should know, assault mechs tend to be slower than light mechs. So uh, it can become more challenging to control the map the bigger you get. Uh, you know, there's sort of risk-reward elements there. Uh, I don't want to get into it too deep, but that's basically what you can expect out of a standard game of terrain control. So was terrain control uh, a game mode that's an original creation, or was it inspired by something else? Uh, well, it's pretty similar to the Battlefield games, It's my understanding. Yeah, Very I mean, it, it also reminds me a lot of my favorite Arma Free mode, um, Capture the Island, right? It's, it's kind of same jump, but I mean, it's probably been that type of mode like for years and years. Like, I, I wouldn't I'd be surprised if it came from like 90s or 80s even. But yeah, right. uh, I think it's, it's, it's the concept of it is kind of easy to understand, maybe not so easy to execute for players, right? They just don't get the priorities, right? But, uh, Another comparison people have made is Planetside, although we don't oh, have yeah. any, any resource gathering elements, which are present in the first Planetside game. In a second, too, although it's not like a main focus of it, right? Uh, main focus is the capturing points and right. holding them. But yeah, just like Liko said, the main objective of the mode is, is capturing various objectives. Um, they can vary in, or you know, in the number, in the also in the purpose, right? That, that's the oh, right. important thing, the purpose, right? I forgot so that are, part. Uh, yeah, yeah. I was like, hmm, is he gonna mention it? So uh, there are secondary bases. 
that are one of the key uh, elements of the um, terrain control. They can often have like limitation of what mechs you can spawn, like the weight limitations, but not often. Uh, you can rearm in at them, but sometimes you don't. And instead, there can be points where you just rearm or just the yeah. points where you repair. Also, there can be points where you just grab it, but instead it has the highest um, score modifier that takes down the enemy's ticket. Right. Tickets, right? Does I, I mentioned that. But... Uh, does the distribution of um, different bases and different ticket values and whether or not they have a, a spawn point or a mech bay at them, does that alter the meta for any given map? Oh, it does. Yeah, 100%. Does. Yeah. So that was something I, I was just going to mention is that uh, that's really the, the variety of Living Legends where you find it is um, the differences between uh, the size and number of objectives on maps. Um, and the objectives themselves can either just be a point you capture, like Kidson said, or a mech factory, or a repair bay, or an ammo depot, or all of the above. And... Um, uh, so the the metagame can be very different on different maps, uh, because, for example, on, on a map like Urban Jungle, a rather notorious map, because uh, almost all of the bases on that map can spawn almost any unit. So you have, you know, your atlases and direwolves rolling out of forward bases that are only a few hundred meters away from each other, Well, the action doesn't move very far away from that middle area. Uh, and you, you don't see very many fast units like uh, Black Lanterns or what have you, other than to capture the objectives on the very outside of the map. Apparently, uh, these days the map design, like kind of the the way the map kind of works, is a little bit different because the out of the way points are worth a lot more than the middle ones now. So there's there is a good reason to like be somewhere in between. It's about force projection. And uh, yeah. uh, I'm kind of jumping around here, but this is something I mentioned previously in case anyone forgot or is jumping around in, in our podcast here. The point of capturing all these objectives is to reduce the enemy's team tickets. So uh, bases, the objectives may have different weights. So, uh, you know, you might control the mech factory and the repair bay, uh, and they have a combined weight of 1.5, but the, the base in the middle of the map that has no extra function is worth 3 and the enemy has it, so uh, they're actually draining your team tickets over time. Your tickets are bleeding, is what people will usually say. What are the tickets so, for, exactly? Uh, when your team tickets run out, the game is over and you've lost. And uh, you use them up when you respawn, and they also decrease when you die. And if you're in something bigger and fancier, you lose more team tickets. So is uh, there an aspect of the meta where you might use a smaller asset that's worth fewer tickets mm, yes. i don't think it, it, it is but i don't think it's something that's usually considered in the pub game like yeah ever <laughs> i would say that that's, that's incidental great, in that the reasons that you would use those units aren't specifically because of their lower team ticket cost i'll return to the example of the black laner which is a 55 ton mech that goes very very fast um 130 kph with mask i believe so that's basically the premier um back capper unit of the middle to late game which is uh specifically referring to uh, going behind enemy lines to capture their objectives forcing them to spread back out and retreat into their own half of the map um so a black laner is worth fewer tickets than i don't know uh, a nova cat for example you might be able to afford both of them but if you 
really need to break up a concentration of enemy force, you might opt for the Black Lantern uh, because you can go capture one of their objectives and someone will have to leave their concentration of force to take. And that way you'll actually get more done than if you roll up in a Novacat and just shoot at them and they shoot back at you and you return to base. Then, well. Hey, I that's think... why this podcast is called that. Name drop. Indeed. I would say, though, that uh, like actually considering ticket value is something that I personally consider a lot when I'm playing in TC, whenever I'm down tickets, mostly. Mm-hmm. Uh, like If you're in like a situation where you have very few tickets left over, and maybe say you're losing really hard, uh, maybe like, kind of, alright, so, so Liko made kind of the comparison between like a Novacat and a Blackliner. Maybe you can afford both, and they're roughly, they're actually fairly similar in price. But those are like two very different roles. Say instead that I, you know, like, I need, I know that what I need to do right now is that, like, okay, the most important point in the map is being held by a lot of enemy units, and we need to push into that point. Like, we have a decent number of sidecaps, but we're still bleeding a lot. Or maybe not, not bleeding a lot, but we're still, like, a fair bit down, and we need to really make up the remaining difference. We don't not have the time remaining in the match. Yeah, or, or you are, but it's just not enough. The only way you could is if you get that particular... So I have that amount of money, and it's like, okay, I can choose a Novacat, or I can choose a Warhammer or something. Or maybe a mech that's worth a little bit less. Uh, the idea is that, like, okay, I probably, like, we're, we're going to have to move aggressively, say, and I'm not sure that I'm going to be able to survive whatever fight we're in, or it may even be better for me not to live through the fight, because then if I die, then I can respawn in something fast and do force projection elsewhere on the map if necessary. Like, in situations like that, then I do consider, well, okay, do I really want, you know, like, an expensive, uh, ex- both expensive in terms of seabills and expensive in terms of tickets, asset that, like, if I die, like, I could potentially lose the match for my team, or make it a lot harder to win, versus something that I can afford to die in, and I can afford to play more aggressively in, and, like, kind of give more chances for myself and for everybody else. Uh, those are, this is, like, kind of still, like, a bit of an edge case, I think. Like, these are pretty exceptional situations, like, where you really have to consider, well, do I really want to spend the extra four tickets uh, for, like, you know, the slightly less firepower or the less mobility or whatever. But it is, it is like, a, a serious consideration that can come down uh, whenever, like, tickets are really narrow between teams. Yeah, I know that uh, back when the uh, Harasser with the Flamethrowers had six of them instead of four, it's still good, but, I mean, it was better back better then. Now. It was, uh, or it, it could melt things better back then, right? Mm, yeah, but so just going back to what Darrow said, right, because he said he doesn't agree with me uh, when I mentioned the fact that it's not something that's taken into account. What I meant, of course, of course it matters and it's important, and it's taken by, into account by... Uh, well, veteran players in general, but let's be real. Like majority of players don't really care whether whether you know they're them dying in something heavier changes the course of the game. Sometimes often they're just be lining for the point, just going in there and dying. That, that's kind of what I meant. It, it's not something right. that's in the uh, you know in a wider consciousness of players. They don't yeah. account it as much as points themselves which often leads to the downfalls of team where just people keep on hopping into the expensive assets and keep on repeatedly dying. And despite having advantage, it just can melt really quickly and lead your team to defeat. Yep. Because I otherwise with, uh, I absolutely agree with that. With a lot of uh, new players um, that haven't been able to try out all the mechs in a uh, an actual pub game, uh, maybe they've only been able to build them in the test server and they actually want to, um, or the, in the free play server, maybe they actually want to be able to play that big stompy mech uh, in a terrain control game. They might, they might go for that big stompy mech, even though it's not a good choice for the current 
uh, situation, either because it's worth too many tickets, it's too slow, not maneuverable enough, something like that. I usually don't see that as being too differential, though. Uh, for players who can't regularly get into those types of assets, and like, like occasionally I've seen this, where there's somebody who like, isn't like a super experienced player or they're very green and they buy like an Atlas or something, like, even if they don't perform all that well in it or if they die without inflicting equivalent ticket damage or whatever, it's usually not enough to like sink the team uh, because like it's only one big loss like or one like kind of chunk loss. The, the thing that like really drains a team's tickets quickly is like players who can consistently get into like Mad Cats and then consistently walk into the enemy team and explode with them. So then you're like constantly losing like 13 or 14 tickets or whatever every time this person decides to walk in the enemy team. Uh, that's, that's, I think that's like, whenever somebody talks about like ticket bleed in terms of like, even when you have map control and like, you know, kind of throwing assets, like that's, I think what people are thinking of. You know, technically Atlas is worth only one ticket more than uh, Madcat, so. <laughs> <laughs> yep. It, it's the same thing, honestly. It's so actually worse, the... but. Uh... In the same time it takes to get that atlas in the in the combat. Yeah, uh, I was about to say it, it takes more time for them to die in the atlas than in Madia, of course. But, I guess uh, uh, yeah. By the time you bring two atlases to to the fight and bo have both of them die, the other players taken three madcats and had them all die. But yeah, that that's kind much. of what's hidden attribute, in my opinion. Like in a, again, in in grand scheme of things, because players that are experienced with the game will know that and will play accordingly, just weighting the, the risk of losing their asset to what team can gain. But yeah. it, the, the, the ticket cost of losing asset uh, in, a, in a terrain control um, is it, it, often what, 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 makes the, uh, what makes the game. Um, and like early on, losing lights to grab the points, it, it's absolutely worth it in general. Like, because lights are not worth much, and just grabbing and holding that point for just a couple minutes will already outweigh the loss of those light mechs. But the moment where people start hopping to like clan mediums or you know or heavies and so go on, that's where sure holding points is still very important, but you you really shouldn't be dying. Uh, it, the the kill death ratio isn't important for oh look how much I killed, right? It's more important not to die in those big stompy things yeah the terrain only, control um, is often all about that risk and reward balance there the only big uh downside to dying a lot early on um because it doesn't like actually hurt your team very much just as you were saying kids and uh uh and it's not going to cost your team a whole lot of tickets like for example today on warzone uh i know my team lost <laughs> pretty badly but uh early on i went as battle armor and sure i lost us four tickets or something uh, really quick, but that's not a huge loss. It wasn't a big problem. So even though at the end of the match it looked like, oh, I've had so many deaths, well, some of those were low-ticket deaths. Uh, the other thing to consider, though, about uh, lots of deaths early on is how much you are feeding the other team, because um, I know that the ticket bleed, the rate at which the, um, the tickets on your team go down from your opponent having uh, more captured bases than you, that rate is actually pretty low to start with, and it doesn't start picking up pace toward until uh, a few minutes into the match. Ten minutes. Ten minutes, yeah. Uh, so at the very beginning, if you have the option between capturing a low, or capturing like a, uh, I guess to put it in a better context, so capturing a forward spawn with a mech bay and everything, 
that's a really high priority, of course, because that helps you project control over the map for the rest of the game. But, um, but say maybe there's the high ticket value post in the middle of the map or something like that. If you have the choice to go capture that or go kill an enemy in the beginning of the game, you go kill the enemy and then capture that post later. The delay is, or the the extra points are worth more than the delay. Yeah, that that's an excellent segue. I was just going to talk about that actually. Um, so because like team tickets, uh, you know, as we established, an individual player in a pub game is not going to often weigh. You know, is this worth more than the other? Uh, what am I risking in terms of team tickets? Start thinking about C bills more often, and how do I get something that can get me into a bigger thing that can get me into a really dangerous thing that I can kill lots of bad guys with. That's kind of more how people are thinking, right? It's all about the economy. The team tickets is only one side of it. Um, and terrain control games are usually about an hour. They can end faster than that if one team runs out of tickets, but um, they're pretty long. And uh, usually, in my opinion, the deciding factor uh, is which team sets up their econ better in the early to middle phases. Because by the end of that game, most of the players, if they're not cycling in and out and they've been there since the start, they'll be in heavy to assault mechs, uh, you know, depending on the map. Uh, but the team that set up their econ better early on will have more advanced heavy and assault mechs or will have them sooner and keep the enemy from having them for longer. Um, and the getting to clan mediums and to heavy mechs in general uh, quickly can be very oppressive because they kind of sit at the the intersection of firepower, armor, and mobility, like all three. Uh, the heavier mediums and um, basically any of the clan heavies, I mean, all the mechs and tanks and everything are great. Uh, the balance in this game is great, but uh, clan in particular because they're more expensive and have more dangerous weapons. Uh, and, you know, they're they're all pretty fast, so they don't sacrifice map control. Uh, whichever team can get a lot of those on their team faster than the other can set up a very solid advantage. Assuming they don't lose them in a team fight. Or throw them right. Individually. And but also yeah. there's a certain window where if not enough people jump into those heavier things and project the control, the map, like, especially on a key objective, uh, there is a certain window where NMA, because of being in a lower tier assets, um, it's it's not probably well known mechanic for for many still. But if you're firing at the mech of a higher tier, you get multiplicatively more points and money, right? So there's certain window where people, when one team can upgrade like into mediums, and the other team can dish out sufficient damage into those mediums with their lights that then just leap over mediums and hop into heavies and just cream the enemy, even though the enemy seem to have certain advantage early on, right? Yeah. So now now we're getting into some um, advanced veteran metagame, I would say. But uh, this is something I really love about Living Legends, uh, is these, uh, I guess you could call them rubber banding mechanics or comeback mechanics. Uh, it's almost like the way it works in, in a game like Dota, which is uh, another game I love. Uh, and another game that I regard as uh, a shining example of well-balanced multiplayer. Uh, the more you build up an advantage on your team, the more you stand to give away if you die. Uh, I think that's really beautiful. And uh, an advanced player will actually um, 
know the uh, the tiers of different assets, which is a whole separate category, separate from team tickets and everything else and money. Um, and certain mechs like the Commando, for example, uh, you might say, why would you ever buy a Commando? They're all about 30,000 to 35,000. The lowest rank is 43,000, and there's other heavier mechs with better guns, even in the starter bracket. Well, say you're joining halfway into the game, and you're in that Commando, which is a lower tier than the other starters, uh, and therefore makes more money, and you're shooting at Clan Heavies, which are very, very high tier. Well, you're going to leapfrog right over them into the Assault Mech of your choice if you manage to survive a fight or two. And you've got bigger, scarier teammates to hide behind and enable your uh, presence in the game there. Uh, one important thing to note about um, tiers is that uh, you're not just making more um, C-Bills, you're also making more points. And those points contribute to your rank, so even if you die, you'll still be getting more C-Bills faster. Yeah, it's, it's actually like what Liko said as well. It's not even about like being late joiner. Like something comparing starter assets, something like Commando, which is like tier one, I think. It's, I don't think there's tier zero anymore, right? No, there but, isn't. But there's other starter asset that's Owens. And the difference, I think, is like tier six, tier five, something like that between yeah. Owens and Commando. Because it's, of the electronics. Something ridiculous. And uh, the difference, Owens will gain 30% less Sibyl shooting the Commando, and Commando will earn 30% more. So, and it can it can really spiral out of control sometimes if the commando player can keep on dishing out damage and not dying they can suddenly have an assault within eight ten minutes in the game and uh, that can also be turning to very stompy game assuming of course he doesn't feed too much in that assault as well right to find out the tiers uh listeners can uh pull up the um wiki uh it's uh wiki.mechlivinglegends.net and if you look up tier, um, it'll actually have a chart there that will show you every single asset in the game, mech, tank, battle armor, whatever, and it'll show you what the multiplier is for each of those. And so just looking at it, for example, uh, the commando is tier one alongside the Mithras. And so the Mithras and the commando are making more C-bills and more points for dealing damage and contributing to the fight than any other asset. And in tier two, you've got harassers and chevaliers. And so th those two are going to be getting a really high multiplier. And so when your harasser shoots, you know, even just a starter raven, they are getting considerably more C-bills than the, uh, the solitaires that might be shooting that raven. Of course, the converse is, or you know, the trade-off, of course, is that these types of assets are usually a lot harder to stay alive in always slower sometimes they're worse armed or they're more lightly armored so the good thing is like you do have a lot of freedom to screw up because if you die it's you're only losing like one or two tickets or whatever um it is but it's like an interesting part of the learning curve of the game or, or rather maybe not learning curve but uh, skill ceiling where it's like you like to be a really good living legends player like in my opinion you have to not only be good at like using like really good assets like okay once i'm like in a clan heavy you have to be good at like managing your aggro and putting out all your damage, staying alive, but also just like before you even get there, it's like, okay, I want to take something less than what I somebody ordinarily might take at this tier or at this rank or whatever. And I just want to get more money so I can get into something bigger faster. Like I was mm -hmm. saying. Mm -hmm. 
that's what used to like I, I still cry over solitaire just bumping into tier four it, it, it was such a fun to use it when it was low tier but uh um i think one thing we kind of haven't touched uh, yet uh, for the pub game uh, especially is aerospace which uh, oh, boy. Is, is a very uh sensitive right, topic so. for me and <laughs> yeah um, people love them or hate them aircraft are a divisive topic so also really that, talked about tanks too and yeah and so tanks, uh, tanks are more similar to mechs at least I, i'd say they are uh because well they're on a goddamn ground and they capture objectives and you know they're just moral profile generally uh, more armored although at least they can spread armor as a better uh, in some sense usually fewer but, weapons um, yeah and usually fewer weapons not always some pack a lot of punch uh, generally also i would say they're more cost effective honestly i'd say they're most cost effective the main drawback of tanks is their maneuverability a lot of them are really slowish not all but slow and crisis engine also has their special physics that can result in some very uh, unpleasant experiences where your tank might get stuck flip or god forbid friendly mech step oh, on you and then you have um you know other reasons to be upset uh but honestly i wouldn't say that the difference between tanks and uh, mechs is is as significant duh as with aerospace uh which is yeah, it's it's a big topic for for pub games especially. Right. Well, so we can speak more generally about how the combined arms aspect comes into play of the metagame. Uh, so that's interesting because uh, each different unit type kind of has its own niche. I would say um, aircraft are an interesting place to start because they're they're the most radically different from mechs, which are sort of the base experience of the game that everything else is uh, contrasted to or meant to interact with. So... Actually, uh, forgive me for interrupting. Uh, do we actually uh -huh. like want to add something particular just for the um, terrain control or because we kind of, you know, are jumping more right. from, kind of my fault, actually, more like asset focus? No, I'd like to hear about the aircraft. All right. Well, so I, I was going to speak more specifically about how they come into playing turn control, though. Uh, thank you for focusing me. Um, so aircraft are kind of funny in turn control because, um, uh, you know, I, I feel a lot of new players come in with this mentality of finding a play style that they like and kind of sticking with it 100% of the time. You know, like uh, to take a different example, a different game like Mordhau uh, is a first-person sword fighting multiplayer game and to read you know just try a bunch of different weapons till you find a fun one and then use it every game all game until you know how to use it really well mech warrior living legends is not like that at all i would almost tell a new player uh to try to learn as many different things as you can um once you're comfortable with the basics uh i i because uh I'm trying to figure out a good way to segue through this so Living Legends has a lot of different uh, counterplays and a lot of different map situations and a lot of different play styles. And um, if you try to focus on one of them and you don't understand the dynamics of another, a player who does can kind of have their way with you. And it'll be very frustrating and it might feel like, uh, well, you know, we often see people say aircraft or battle armor are overpowered and that they can't, you know, I literally cannot kill them uh please nerf 
a good analogy but, might be um, rock, paper, scissors, for example. And if, right. if your opponent knows you're always going to pick scissors, that can be a big problem. Right. So you don't want to only play scissors. You need to learn all the play styles at least a little bit. So I always tell people who are very frustrated with aircraft, just spend some time in them, and then you will learn all the way they, they, they die, and you'll get much better at killing them. You so, tell me that, mate. <laughs> aircraft. In terrain control, um, they're kind of finicky because they're either very good or very bad. Uh, most situations, they'll be more of a detriment to your team than not in general because you're not going to be sharing armor directly with your teammates and you're not going to be pushing onto objectives with them on the ground. They're very difficult... Uh... It's very difficult to use aircraft to capture bases. Oh, yeah. Yeah, on most maps, it's literally impossible. And on the maps that it is possible, it requires a great deal of skill to do without suiciding. And uh, repeatedly suiciding in your aircraft or repeatedly getting shot down by the enemy team because you just fly straight towards the nearest enemy every life is uh, a good way to single-handedly throw the game for your team. So we, we do see a lot of that uh, from new players who come into Living Legends and they're like, wow, this is so cool. This is the first Battletech game I've ever seen where you can use the aerospace. I'm going to fly all the time. This is so cool. I'm busting out my HOTAS. And then every game they're like 0-20 and you're begging them to go back on the ground like, please. Um, and on the other extreme, uh, you know, you have players who are good enough to land their Sparrowhawks on the objectives and capture them on some maps. Uh, but, you know, I would say where they have their best use in general, is uh, finishing off retreating enemies that would otherwise survive, repair, and preserve their team tickets. Uh, especially in a narrow game uh, where every one of those kills really matters. Um, and the kills matter more and more uh, the later you go into the game when people are in assault mechs and such. They're worth a lot of team tickets. And... Uh, would that the lead last... you to pick uh, a bomber more often than, say, an attacker or a fighter? Um, I would say bombers are probably the most common in general um, because they're the most optimized for air-to-ground attack and the most optimized for what aircraft are really best at doing, which is what I just said, you know, because uh, the, the last thing you want is to sacrifice yourself or your teammates and almost kill an enemy assault mech or whatever and then have it survive you know so an aircraft will get you that kill and that's why people love bombers and uh there's a bit of a rock paper scissors game where uh you know attackers are good at fighting anything and uh fight uh fighters right i believe we might be moving to a new nomenclature calling them interceptors that's been discussed um but they're they're optimized for shooting down other aircraft um but uh, there's a lot of, you, you have to know exactly when to use all of these things. Uh, because if you, if you grab a fighter and you shoot down the enemy aircraft and then they get in a tank, well, you know, you're not going to be very useful and you probably don't have enough money from one kill to get something worth having on the ground. Well, it can be a bit problematic. All that, those kind of nuances are why I say that they're very situational and more often than not can be a detriment to your team. I actually have a fairly long point to also address some of the things Liko said. So, but unless uh, I don't know, Dyworth, maybe you should hop in if you have something to add, and then I'll comment on that as well. Um, 
Not especially. I think the way I think Lego covered it pretty well. Uh, mm -hmm. Just I don't Lego flies airspace a lot more than I do in terrain control. Uh, but I basically feel the same way. Uh, because they're so situational, I'm usually pretty reluctant to pull them out mm -hmm. uh, in game, just because it usually seems it's like this is very specific situations where you need to be where like they're actually effective or at least more effective than something on the ground. Uh, there are specific situations, mostly where, like for example, if the enemy team is invested very heavily in artillery and it's a big map and you can't get there easily by like with a single ground asset, and you just really want to be able to project a lot of force, really threaten those specialist assets, uh, or maybe if not an artillery asset, but maybe say some really mobile jump sniper or something that like it's just very hard to respond to. Um, or also if you need to like deal with the back capper that's very persistently taking important points on say like stone rows, uh, where there's a lot of open ground and a back capper can't easily hide like a really big ticket drain. Like aerospace are really good because you can blow up stuff quickly uh, and you can kind of project force anywhere on the map against isolated targets. But unless you're very, very good at that and you're really good at managing aggro and hitting all of your guns and all this, like you're really not making the best use of the seat builds you spent on that. So it's yeah. that's that's pretty much how I feel about Air, it. Aircraft are creatures of extremes. They can either be extremely detrimental to their own team or they can be extremely clutch and extremely oppressive to the enemy team. The general rule of thumb that I've found for when to use an aircraft and where when not to is does your team control the majority of the posts, the majority of the bases on the map? If your team yeah. doesn't currently control most of the bases, then that means you, some, you need somebody on the ground capturing bases or pushing in on the places that your opponents are defending so you can capture a different base. And aircraft right. just don't let you exactly. capture, and they don't let you bring the armor to share with your friends. So uh, if you are down on caps, it is a good idea to stay on the ground. Additionally, oh, absolutely. you can cap with aerospace. But it's hard to do, uh, and only certain aircraft can do it. And it also depends on the map. But Sparrowhawks and things like that actually are really silly if you absolutely need to get something to cap the point. At the, like, you know, that has a bunch of enemies between yeah. you and it. That's really an edge case, though. Very much an edge case, but yeah. <laughs> it is, it's a silly one, and it's one that some very good aerospace pilots will use. When, I, yeah. um, when I'm choosing to take an aircraft, um, at least in my case, uh, I'll be taking a bomber pretty frequently, just as uh, Liko was talking about. I'll take a bomber to blow up uh, uh, enemies as they retreat. But in other cases, I might take a fighter. And usually if I'm taking a fighter, I'll be taking a fighter that's good at painting targets like with a narc. So that would be like the medium X-Pulse laser um, uh, Corsair or the medium pulse laser Sula because they both have narcs and that can be really helpful for my team. They're also really good at shooting down enemy airplanes and they can do enough damage to targets on the ground, not like a bomber, but it's enough that they're still halfway decent at it. All right, so if I may, uh, if, if, if I'll be rumbling the mind, just please uh, bring me back. Uh, I, ha I have strong opinions about uh, aerospace and especially in terrain control and you know, uh, in pub games. Because in, in, in uh, organized play, you usually see like one, maybe two per team, right? And no more yeah. than that. They're limited, actually, forcefully. So Liko made a lot of great points. I absolutely agree with him. Uh, what I kind of want to focus on is, uh, first of all, when often you might play with a low number of players, 
please don't take our space because with low amount of players suddenly just losing that one extra body on the ground just makes all the difference because usually you don't contribute as much with especially with the lower tier aircrafts as you would on the ground fighting with people sharing armor what Liko said right and yeah, capturing and points i have to echo that strongly <laughs> yeah and yeah. It's, it can be very detrimental and very unfun uh, the early planes again I, I'm talking like in a broader scale because great players, there are some disgusting aerospace players. They, they can grab them, they can land, capture points. Uh, but that's the also other thing, right? They can be very, some players can be very oppressive of aerospace. Um, also using the mechanics we discussed earlier when they can earn a lot more money by using certain assets against certain assets, they can suddenly jump into some sort of heavy bomber. like. God forbid, Shiva or Xerxes, right? And, uh, and the map can shift a lot just based on those players because the, the great players will be able to absolutely obliterate any valuable mechs on the other side without much counterplay because the moment aerospace fighter comes first, usually there's no AA in the other team. Uh, if there is some, it's, it's very limited. Maybe it's a mech that can look up high. Maybe someone just grabbed uh, Rogue Partisan. But um, aerospace can be very swingy, very oppressive in the right hands because once you learn how to fly, uh, you can attack from uh, very hard to defend from angles, right? Someone is just flying from top of you. You know that you're getting bombed, but your teammates might not necessarily notice it yet. And you just cannot defend yourself, sort of that sort of thing. So that that kind of brings back to the point where um, you know the, the feeding of an NM team can be very painful when it feeds someone that's really good with aerospace. But uh, yeah, um, aerospace can be uh, very swing uh, swingy. Um, can either win you the game, crash those heavy mechs, can lose you a game because you repeatedly get shot. Maybe you're just not good. That nothing wrong with that. You'll learn eventually. Uh, <laughs> or there might maybe an enemy team just went really hard on um, anti-air focus, and then you bleed a lot of tickets. So yeah, air is something that's um, probably the hardest aspect of Living Legends to learn, uh, both to play as and to play against, uh, and can be frustrating. So uh, yeah, a, a lot of patience is required with that topic, and. At least for me. I don't know if you, if you guys agree with that or not. It's interesting oh, that you I'll bring this up. up. It's really interesting that you bring this up because it just happened to me uh, last week where uh, there were five players on each team and we had a very good aerospace pilot on the enemy's team. And so my team couldn't really do anything to that aircraft early on. It's you know difficult for us to pitch our torsos up high enough to hit it. We took weapons, not anticipating an aircraft to be there, uh, and so we got pretty thoroughly owned by that experienced player. And uh, yeah, it's and then other times, it, you know, late at night when there aren't a whole lot of players, and somebody on the other team goes aerospace, but they're not very good at it. You know, they just don't contribute to the fight, and their and their friends are just getting outnumbered in every single conflict. And in that fight that I was in uh, last week, uh, when I ended up, uh, we ended up trying to bring some anti-aircraft assets to bear. And when we did, uh, we just got crushed in the ground game because the mechs that were attacking us on the ground were better at fighting things on the ground than our anti-aircraft assets. So 
uh, it created just this really unfun situation. And I remember um, that the reason why uh, in Chaos March and uh, that it, you had to have at least six players per side in order to have an aircraft uh, have aircraft was because that was about how many um, assets you need per side and how many players you need per side before you can justify bringing a dedicated anti-aircraft asset. And um, but that was a continuation of an old rule, which I think it was 420 ME that originally made it back when he was community manager. Uh, way back during the early days of Huntress, and I mean, he he wasn't he didn't run Huntress, but uh, you know he was involved in sort of establishing some community rules, and uh, that was sort of like a gentleman's rule they had going for a while. Uh, yeah, that's yeah. that's not a bad rule. Um, aerospace in a twelve-player game, uh, you know, any especially anything smaller than that is not fun to play. Uh, you know, on your team and not fun to play against at all. Based on you the know. skill of the players, yeah. mostly, yeah. <laughs> uh, you know, playing against skilled player, it's going to be very frustrating because you're not likely to have a lot of teammates covering you. Because, you know, the best defense from an aerospace diving you from directly overhead where you can't shoot back is your teammates. Well, mm -hmm. the fewer players there are on your team, the less likely there are to be players covering you nearby with the right weapons. And uh, something that bears mentioning, uh, I'm not sure exactly how on topic this is, but I feel like the concept of dedicated anti-air is a much abused one in Living Legends. I, it's almost never worth buying something with the explicit intention of shooting at aircraft with it, unless the enemy aircraft is so oppressive that you cannot win the game unless you do that. Because once you've shot down the aircraft and accomplished your goal, well, you've hamstrung yourself. You've got something that you're only wanting to kill aircraft with, and there's no more enemy aircraft. Because if the other guy's smart, he's not going to keep diving into your guns. He's either going to go somewhere else, or he's going to sell his aircraft. And then you've got an anti-aircraft stick with nothing to hit. Well, I mean, it's not like... I mean, because, like, let's see, what dedicated anti-aircraft does to me, right? We have Rifleman, Partisan, Huey. Right. Well, so, design-wise, I wouldn't... I wouldn't necessarily describe anything as a dedicated yeah. anti-air unit. It can be used for whatever, but it's about yeah. the mentality you go in with it, right? Mm -hmm. Oh uh, yeah, just look the out ultra, all the time, yeah. Yeah, the, the Ultra AC2 Hewitt can kill anything, right? But if you're sitting behind your whole team staring up the whole time, you're not really helping. Not unless there's an enemy Shiva that you absolutely need to be watching for at all times, right? Yes, yeah, especially yeah. with that. Uh, particular Hewitt, it's got Angel Electronic Countermeasures, and if you're not up there with your friends, Angel you're not helping names. them. Yeah. That, that kind of brings us back to train control as a whole and kind of other thing we kind of, you know, just the, the map awareness is like, and, and, and your surrounding awareness is also incredibly important, right? We kind of went over it, I think, when we're talking about the points in general, but uh, yeah, being aware where enemies are, where they are going, and what your teammates are doing is like, it's also incredibly important for everything, um, for any counterplay uh, by both sides, and yeah. Do you uh, do you all have any idea of what maps um, assault mechs show up at a much lower frequency than others? Ivory Tower is the first thing I would Ooh. think of. Ivory Tower is a notorious no assault map because uh, there's nowhere you can repair an assault except your main base, yeah. and the paths through the map unless you have improved jump jets, which assault mechs 
even with improved jump jets, I have a hard time navigating vertical spaces. Um, are you know they're very convoluted. Uh, so you know a objective that might be a kilometer away might require you to go down a kilometer and a half of road because it twists through some strange path. It's kind of like one of those maps. Um, and so it can be fun to fight very moving fights on, but if you get something like an atlas that can only go 54 kilometers an hour, you're going to suffer. Yeah, lack of those repair parts other than the main is, makes Assault, again, a very uh, nice uh, piece to finish off by aerospace, especially when they're trying to retreat to the main base, right? Um, usually very low, they just get shot in the retreat. Uh, you know, we... yeah, generally big maps, uh, big maps where like the main points of contest are often far away from repair pads. Yeah. Uh, probably like open spaces where assault may can get easily locked on by, let's say, missiles or, you know, long-term shell lands on top of him. Yeah, maps like Enceladus or um, Valley Forge. Um... Or even maps like Dune, where the forward factories uh, don't repair, and because uh, then then you have um, you know a base that only builds and doesn't repair. Well, if you get in a fight, you return damaged. You can sell your mech and build another one, but you're not getting an assault mech. Yeah, and the re repair gantries on Dune uh, are so open that uh, uh, an aerospace pilot or something like that can pretty easily prevent you from repairing. Mm -hmm. The good thing though about a lot of assault mechs is that like a lot of the I don't want to say the meta ones, but a lot of, like, there's a lot of assault mechs that have very good force projection, like Madcap Mark II Prime, for example, which has twin gauss rifles, lerms, some mirror mediums, or a lot of Masakaris. Like, they can do most of their damage, like, out to 700 meters plus. So, some assault pilots, like, like Evan, for example, very rarely will, like, be in close quarters. So, even if, like, objectives are somewhat, like, leave you somewhat exposed, if you're good at kind of managing your exposure a lot, or like, okay, these are generally where enemy uh, units are going to be transiting, and I'm just going to be dumping my like all my assault gun on them for a short period, that's enough to be very productive. Even if you're not necessarily always on the points, like there are certain types of assaults that are just really good by merit of how much firepower they have and how far they can project it. Good area denial. Yeah. So Masakari Alpha, Masakari Prime to a lesser extent, Masakari Bravo, and uh, Atlas Prime, things like this can still be used even on really massive maps, just because they don't need to necessarily be going all that far yeah. to be able to do their damage. I would say that zoning is the key concept here. Zoning is something that not enough people understand well, in my opinion. Just the ability to control space by punishing the any anyone that tries to move around in it. If you play ATM standards, then you kind of get zoning, but yeah. Um, or, so uh, I know that you uh, we brought up aerospace, but I didn't hear any talk of VTOLs. When in a game is it the appropriate time to take a VTOL? Never. Never. <laughs> in a pub <laughs> game, never. Okay. In a pub game, no. never. Highly dependent. Uh, no, I'm, I'm being a little harsh. So VTOLs are in kind of a funny place. They've always been kind of a funny unit. Um... They're overdue for a rework, and that's why they've been kind of sitting in this weird place, because we've got a mostly built rework that hasn't been able to be implemented, uh, that is also hasn't been focused on, because we've got some heavier VTOLs that haven't yet been implemented, and that's kind of, you know, we're kicking the can down the road on this one. But uh, they're basically only good for 
compared to other units, right? Because the opportunity cost is always what I'm speaking of when I say whether something is good or bad. I'm saying compared to basically a, a generalist-ish mech of equivalent price. A VTOL is only good for trolling someone who is completely alone, who does not have enough pitch to shoot back at you. Um, other than that, they have a, a very strong niche application for back capping. Um, they're pretty much the strongest dedicated back cappers in the game, even stronger than something like a solitaire or owns, which are built yeah, for that or purpose. Yeah. Or hovercraft. Yeah, because uh, they can go anywhere. <laughs> they can descend directly into the objective and capture it from anywhere. Yeah, even though they're slower than a masking solitaire, they can just fly over everything and ignore terrain. Yeah. And also considerably better armed than a, than a solitaire. Yeah, and if they don't want to get in a fight, they can just avoid it. And they have really good really good radar, so you're not usually going to get, like, somebody's just not going to show up and surprise you. Unless, yeah. like, unless somebody spawns at the base. If they I do think you that late game, um, a solitaire or a hover might end up being a better back capper than a VTOL, especially if the enemy has a lot of aircraft, because... Uh, as a back-capping solitaire, you can run passive and avoid detection by those aircraft sometimes, whereas a VTOL is going to show up real well. Oh, yeah. VTOLs I mean, are easy prey for aircraft, absolutely. yeah. Absolutely. And any type, especially bombers, actually. Bombers are just <laughs> delayed VTOLs. Yeah. It also exposes lots of ground units, so black landers and opponas and regulators and things like that are definitely a lot more survivable and have only a little bit less map presence. They do a the lot one damage, thing... too that I see VTOLs used to good effect in the late game is uh, pretty much just the evil eye. Yeah, that, that's what I was going to say next is uh, that one Hawk Moth functions very, very well as a spotter. It's, it, you know, it's funny. It's like, v, I, I just said VTOLs never take them, but I also just said it's the best back capper in the game. Well, you know, it's also the best spotter in the game, but... Uh, it it requires a very very skilled player and a steady hand with the tag equipment, uh, and it requires you to be a positioning god and to not get shot at all. Yeah, for uh, those it's... who might not know, it's a vital field with electronics, has a tag and has a narc, which is like very support heavy. Yeah, it's got guardian electronic countermeasures, C three and bloodhound probe. Air bloodhound, which I think has even longer. Remember quickly? Yes. So. Yeah, it's uh to draw an analogy. If you're a cultured person and you've played Dota, it's kind of like Meepo. It's this character that almost no one is willing to touch because it's so ridiculously complex and requires so much micro that, like, why would you ever do that to yourself? But the small number of people who are good at it are like gods at what they do. Well, they need team. Though. They need team though. Like Meepo, if I remember correctly, Meepo it's carry right and can kill people. This yeah, it cannot kill people by its own. Sashi <laughs> Prime is Meepo. <laughs> <laughs> um, so speaking of meta, I've uh, or you know, we're talking more about meta here. Uh, what's the um? There's a Kodiak that um is new, and it's a lot like the Master and Commander uh, Atlas. Uh, have any of you had a chance to drive it in the pub yet? It just got it got changed though, didn't it? Like it yeah, not had since some before. Not since before the loadout changed, unfortunately, because um, uh, my my late game buys have been focused on the new 100 ton tanks, which are even newer. Um, 
So unfortunately, I, I haven't really tried any of the assault mech loadouts that have changed in the last patch. Yeah, I've only gotten to try out that Kodiak in a uh, free play server, so I haven't actually gotten to see how well it fares. I'm thinking that it um, it's a bit more, uh, it's a better missile boat than the, um, the Master and Commander, but its narc is less useful because it has 200 meters less range. Uh, personally, I, I really don't like taking assault mechs with, that are meant as like dedicated electronics boats, like for an, I don't know for like an atlas. Like the master and commander is significantly less. It's like basically an avatar's amount of firepower, which yeah. is I mean it's nice that you have all the armor. It's nice that you have all those electronics, but there's very few situations where it's like I'd rather you know just maybe take like a Loki or something, which is a lot squishier but a lot more mobile and has pretty much the same electronics capacity, uh, and lets me put down probably more firepower. That's basically how I feel about most electronics platforms. It's just like, I'll probably just take a Loki Prime if there's anything else I'm thinking of. If I can afford yeah, it. sometimes I'll, uh, like if it's pure tech, I might take, even though it's not uh, the best example, I might take the uh, Thanatos Prime for uh, C3. Same, actually, you know, it's probably one of my favorite late game C3 platforms for iOS. I mean, that's kind of a thing that, I mean, it's a, it's, those are support mechs, right? That they're supposed to work in tandem with the team. That's why they're not really used in pubs that much. Also, if in general, good players will get something that can contribute more, you know, with their skill instead of, so it's not goes to waste with like Cifri Atlas, where you just are really passive. You just launch some missiles here and there, maybe pew pew with lasers, but you're not doing much by your own. You're hoping that your team will use your your radar um, our our narc whatever right so it's again it's something that's more prevalent in the, in the, uh, right. you know organized game yeah that's what you would call off meta is stuff that doesn't see frequent use it's not the sort of thing that anyone relies on or goes to automatically it's a lot more narrow in scope it's something that you pick to deal with a specific situation or to enable a certain play that you have in mind like if you've got a friendly long tom. Right. And you don't feel like taking a raven. Yeah, like if a raven will just die the moment it shows up in front of the enemy team. And you need to both push and provide C3 cover for your team. Well, there's an atlas. Or Thanatos Prime. It's a little bit more <laughs> mobile. That's that's my favorite for that particular type of situation. And with the new C3 Master uh, system on a lot of these long toms, you don't need the uh, the longer radar range of the Master and Commander as much. Because uh, in the past, you know, that Thanatos has to stick within uh, a thousand meters of the long tom in order to share that uh, C3 data. But uh, Whereas the uh, Master and Commander could go 1,400 meters out. And you just don't have to worry about that anymore, at least for um, assets, uh, your allies that have... Uh, uh, what do you call that? Uh, the C3 Master. Um, so I did hear mention of that uh, those super heavy tanks. Uh, how have they changed the meta? Who? Well, heavy tanks. Yeah. Don't don't mm. quite know yet. Quite dramatically, like I would say. Um, their their presence has actually upset the metagame in a way that it it hasn't resettled yet, and I'm not really sure what it will be. They've only been out for a couple weeks now, and they're also still undergoing frequent balance changes at this point. Um, I will say, I think they might be slightly too cheap. Uh, they've already yeah. been raised in price once, but uh, 
on maps like Thunderrift, for example, which is a very, very small map, the active fighting area is about like one kilometer across. Um, sometimes you just see like four of them lined up fighting together. It's not uncommon at all because they're basically in the same price range as, uh, you know, an 85-ton mech. Well, uh, I mean, some of the assets and mostly behemoth right because yeah. well mostly behemoths yeah. clan stuff is more expensive yeah so i think that mars uh, all around is really strong um it, it just packs it's it's just so much armor a lot of weapons sure i think some have like um issues with the weapon groups but <laughs> God, <laughs> have a lot yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, there's that one way of the sniper artillery piece, which is like very skillful, kind of like assault tankish way because it's very short range. And but yeah, again, it's like long term shell point blank basically shooting it. But this one's very strong. With Behemoth, um, I I didn't try all of the loadouts. In general, they're really strong, except of the HVAC ones. And uh, honestly, I think uh, they're absolute dog shit. They're awful. <laughs> Ooh, the prime is great. It's a little bit hot. Uh, I, I, it, I don't know, man. <laughs> the HVAC 5, I think, especially. It's just so bad. It's like a... I don't know, HVAC 5 is funny. I remember that we... At one point I sat down with, I think, Leek and a couple other people to test like damage output, and it's very solid. It's like, I think, roughly this... Like, roughly the same... I think it's more burst than a Hack 20. Roughly the same DPS as Light Gauss or more. And Light Gauss has also, it's like... No, it's equivalent to two Light Gauss. It's equivalent to yeah, two yeah. Light Gauss. For each one. For it each was specifically to... So the, the dual high-velocity autocannon 5 was specifically designed to replace a quad Light Gauss loadout, which would otherwise be the default extreme-range behemoth. Um, so it does approximately the same damage uh, and the same DPS and everything. That's how it was tuned. The trick is that you have to land the entire burst, and that the, the burst has spread, and it's a long burst. It's the longest burst of any burst weapon in the game. It's like 44 projectiles. I mean, that's why I can't agree with you. Like, first of all, comparing to, like, sure, it's supposed to take the place, but it doesn't, because light goes is a pinpoint damage, and if you try firing HVAC 5 over 1,200 meters, you'll hit literally everything from the top to the bottom of mech, Assuming as well you land every single shot when mech is moving, it's not very realistic. <laughs> well, I took it out in a game on Tukeid against... Um, I, I pushed one of the factories basically alone with some teammates way behind me against a Bloodasp and a Mauler that were both slightly pre-damaged and shooting at aircraft at the same time as me. But uh, I came out on top, to my surprise. But what we were firing at? A Mauler and a Bloodasp. But it was like a point-blank range, basically, wasn't it? No, I, I started at like my furthest extreme range of 1,500 meters, shooting with my ELRMs. I guess that's really where it was, would shine the most. Oh, is... yeah. LR... I mean, ELRMs, are, they, they deal more damage than the HVACs. I kind of focus on the HVACs, actually. But yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, because I was testing HVACs. I was curious about the new weapon. And like even firing at the stationary mech, like on Oasis, uh, stationary light mech, I fired like two or three bursts on it, and it was just spraying all over it, despite it wasn't moving. It's, it right. was completely counterproductive. It's, uh... Well, I 
I think they would actually be least effective against light mechs because the spread is going to affect you most against a smaller target. Yeah. Sure. But again, at the 1400 meters, it's still like, you know. But yeah. Uh, one of the things I have noticed um, change in the meta due to the addition oh, of the super heavy. Hmm? Yes, what? Yeah, it's a little hard to hear you. Uh, so one of the things I've noticed change um, with the super heavy tanks being added, uh, at least with the meta, is late game battle armors. Um, battle armor have a really hard time getting stuck in in big fights uh, when there's a couple behemoths or a Mars or something floating around in there with those auto flamer turrets. We yeah, those, the air, really, did we? those auto flamers are brutal. It's hard to get yeah. within 100 meters of one of the new assault tanks. I, funnily enough, I think if you get close enough, like zero range somehow, assuming you don't get killed by the auto flamers, which is not an easy thing to do, but assuming like, I don't know, there's enough cover or whatever, and you're able to get within zero range, I think the Mars can't hit you at all when you're there. Uh, like, I think the turret might be able to hit you because the turret traverse is pretty quick, but it's it, that is very much an edge case. For the most part, like, you just don't want to be anywhere near them because they will just kill you. Uh, which is which is funny because BA are usually one of, like, the hardest counters to tanks. Just being able to, like, kind of mm -hmm. run right next to them. Yeah, we haven't really talked about BA, have we? Yeah, what, what, when do we normally, like, in a normal game, uh, with a typical meta, where do we see battle armor most? When people Highly eject, dependent. <laughs> when people <laughs> eject, that. which they shouldn't do. <laughs> Yeah, unintentional ejections, or at the very end of the game where you can't afford to die. Uh, or, I think more more commonly, like, the most effective use of them is on maps where you have large capture points, and you have, like, the idea is you just want to deny the point as long as possible for teammates, because, say, your team is being heavily out-tunned, and um, the enemy team is like, started rushing, like, Mirage middle. Or maybe, say, like, outskirts or something. The idea is that there, you just, like, you're trying to you're trying to like, keep the enemy team from capturing the point as long as possible, or just take them as long as possible to capture the point. Or, that's that sounds like the same thing, but I mean, like, you're just, you're just trying to deny them tickets. Or, if you want to do this, like, okay, I want to prevent them from capturing the point in the most ticket-efficient way possible, because the battle armor is only worth, like, two tickets. Yep. And it would be very hard for them to kill you if you're using cover very effectively. So just, like, kind of, like, Bolter example, uh, for example, it's, like, really notoriously good at this on, like, Kandahar and formerly Outskirts, but I think it's been changed a little bit. And Mirage. It's just like be hard to kill for as long as possible. Uh and that time period, even if the enemy team like has control over the area around mid, they're not ex they're not trading tickets. Otherwise, like BA tend to have like very narrow niches where it's like you stay at the edge of a fight and you do a bunch of damage. Uh, and that's basically it. Or you hug mechs with a medium heavy laser or sorry, man pack heavy laser or I can't remember the name. Micro heavy laser. Micro heavy laser, that's the M. Yes. Man pack PBC, micro heavy laser. And there you just do a ton of damage and hope they're not staring at you. Because you will do a ton of damage uh, until someone clicks you. I mean, they can't. Like, I actually haven't seen that much BA since I started playing again, since the nerf of BA. because Yeah, they're uh, not as relevant anymore. Yeah, they're not as relevant. The thing with BA was that there are certain players, like mentioned both there, I think Saber. Yeah, Saber definitely. Uh, where uh, BA, actually, I take it back. It wasn't aerospace craft. That's the most obnoxious thing you ever can fight in this game. It was BA, and but the BA piloted by very specific people. Uh, I broke mouse once because of Bolter, I think. I just you know lifted up and smashed it so hard against my desk. 
those buggers can get between your legs if you're isolated and you don't have tight teammates or, or you know the most frustrating when you have teammates and they just don't notice it because of various radar shenanigans um the thing just packs a lot of very close range uh punch with the micro heavy laser with the ppcs with the srms it has it used to have bombs which was just another thing thankfully it's no longer uh, it's no longer a thing but uh ba was able to annihilate assaults just by getting between their legs and shooting at the rear uh very frustrating it was uh, very good and it i mean still is very good on city maps where you can just hop on the roof hide behind the corners um stuff like that yeah, like the central base on um, yeah. uh, Mirage, for example, uh, Battle Armor can hold that uh, for seemingly far longer than they should be able to sometimes. <laughs> yeah. Specifically Delaying... taking cluster bombs just to kill BA on Mirage mid before. Mm. Delaying uh, the capture of an objective is probably the best use of yeah. Battle Armor. Yeah, absolutely. My personal most frequent use of Battle Armor is, you know, sometimes I'm just in the mood to jump around in between people's legs frustratingly. It's just a fun thing to do to people. Uh, you know, I, I notice someone has a Hephaestus or Goblin on the field that I can spawn in and buy equipment in and just jump in the fight. That's also fun to just jump right in in a fight that's going on. Uh, but most of the time, uh, if I respawn in a forward base and I notice that it's already under siege and they're already in the objective and uh, I don't know if I'm going to hold the base long enough to actually have the thing that I'm building finish building, mm -hmm. um, you to mention to if it finishes building and just get destroyed before you or, hop into it, right? Yeah, yeah, or if it seems like you'll automatically die while you're powering up, you uh, switch over to the weapons tab, buy a BA kit, and then hide. Hide or just try and do as much damage as possible? And, yeah, well, you know, you do both of those things at the same time. There's some circumstances, um, like, uh, let's say I'm playing on uh, Death Valley or something, and it's right at the very beginning, and I had to go take a bathroom break, and so I, I come in, and uh, my allies are already out on the battlefield, and they're just heading to cap the first base. Like, maybe they're heading from the west, and they're, um, or, sorry, they're heading from the east, and they've just gotten to Fox 7. I can get out, or spawn as battle armor, get out at Fox 7, uh, spawn at somebody's um, Hephaestus or whatever, help them capture that more quickly, get back in the Hephaestus with them, go down to Gulf 4, and then help them cap that post way more quickly than if I had spawned at main base and grabbed, say, a Solitaire or something. Mm -hmm. yeah. And because of that, I'll have extra money so that once we've captured Gulf 7, that I'll be able to um, buy something bigger. People do that a lot in Thunder Rift. Yeah, uh, jumping down to cap the forward base. Yep. Yeah, it's definitely a very good tool of delaying caps. But yeah, again, can be incredibly frustrating to deal with uh, and, and very good in, in, in fighting on mechs, right, and, and vehicles. Uh, it's not as strong as it used to be. It's still strong uh, with good usage. Um, One of the things but, I do find yeah, to be uh, or a good use of battle armor is fighting other battle armor. Just mm -hmm. like how we were talking oh, about yeah. interceptors, how you take them to kill another plane, well, you take battle armor to kill another battle armor. And, sometimes, uh, because BSRM will kill you in one hit if they're... Oftentimes, if, like, if there's a BA that's causing you enough trouble where you have to buy something dedicated to kill it, or you're going to go as BA dedicated to kill it, probably the person there is a better shot with their kit than you are. That's usually yeah. been my experience. And so your ultimate goal at, when you're doing that has to be not that you're trying to 
uh, make them die faster and make their team lose more tickets than you. You're just trying to get that battle armor off that point. Yeah. yeah but Actually, the thing... Oh, good go on. Go ahead. Oh, okay. okay. Uh, <laughs> you go. <laughs> Alright, um, yeah, there's one, one thing I just, before I forget, uh, we've been talking a little bit about, like, area, about BA's, like, area denial, but the one thing, actually, that we haven't, that I haven't mentioned so far is BA are really, really, really strong against light mechs, uh, because BA SRMs, or these, like, kind of unguided rockets, they do about as much damage as, like, a, if there was a theoretical T-Bolt 7 or T-Bolt 8 or something, like, it does almost as much damage as a T-Bolt 10, uh, so if you just buy a bunch of BA SRMs, and you are really good shots with those, and you're also like a decent shot with whatever other secondary weapons you have, you can completely melt light mechs very fast. So early game, like you can be extremely oppressive if you like it in a half and you take a point early and then you just kind of kill everything that gets close to it. Like on Death Valley and Mirage especially, I think. Is where it's just kind of like, okay, if a friendly gets to mid with a half, you are going to give everyone who gets anywhere close a horrible, horrible time. Because you're probably either going to be able to kill them in a couple of salvos or make them hurt a lot. And if they spend time trying to kill you, they're not going to be able to hit the allies who are probably all very fast by this point in the game and might be able to take advantage. Yeah, just it's very high uh, skill uh, ceiling uh, to play BA properly. Because you, you, you will die very fast if you don't play properly, if you don't use cover, if you don't move hectically. Um, but yeah. Um, and But the, also the thing is, like if someone's playing dedicated BA, uh, it's not exactly you can ignore it because if you try to ignore it, which generally would be a good idea, to, you know, to focus on object and whatnot, VAs can keep up with Max by firing PPCs backwards, for example, and just propelling themselves with the PPC. You know, they can keep on chasing and they keep can keep on shooting your back. So, you know, sometimes you just have to deal with BA. And when you have to deal with BA, just wait for it to pick you. Uh, you know, lasers are great. Uh, some splash is great uh, to kill it. Uh, but yeah, just just will be a game of patience. <laughs> uh, let's. Oh, so one thing, um, uh, meta-wise that I use battle armor for is I will actually in a lot of games, uh, if there's enough players, I'll begin in an APC and I will drive that APC like on Dune, for example, and hide it uh, either in the water behind one of the the um, the forward bases or behind the rocks behind one of the forward bases, and uh, that way I'm you know 500 meters out the bloodhound probe ravens and things won't be able to see it powered down out there and i cap the base and uh uh if they ever take the base back from me then i'll just wait a minute or two and then spawn in and then move in and take the base right back yeah it can be clutch it can absolutely be a clutch and you know people will be not sure what's going on right they, they keep on losing the point and, stuff, and they cannot find why uh yeah BA played properly can be huge asset and also can be a huge uh, issue for a team if like five people decide to just hop around in BAs and do just jack shit. Uh, well, we've been talking about this for quite a while, so uh, there's also um, we we're gonna bring up uh, organized terrain control. Um, any major differences between terrain control and organized terrain control? Night edition. Sorry, say again, Kidson? Uh, night and day difference. <laughs> I heard Kidson, but I didn't hear Direwolf. What did you say, Direwolf? I just said coordination. And I think coordination. that's basically, yeah, that's kind of the, that's the main difference. There's also a heck of a lot more uh, donations that go on in organized um, training. Yeah, control. C bill sharing, a lot more of it. Um, 
Yeah, that's an interesting question. I feel like it is a very different game, but it's hard to say exactly how concisely or in terms of the metagame. Uh, it's definitely elevated in terms of the, the level of coordination and the pace. Like, uh, in a pub game, people react a lot more slowly. Uh, not everyone reads chat. Not everyone reads chat quickly or at the same time. Uh, and, you know, some people don't react at all until you run right in front of them or shoot weapons in their face and then run towards the enemy to explain to them what they're supposed to be doing. Um... Whereas, you know, in an organized game, you say, everybody push now, and then everybody pushes at the same time, hopefully. Um, so, in a sense, that does change what the tactical possibilities are. Um, but I feel like the overall meta is pretty similar in terms of what people's choices are. Um, especially because during organized play... Uh, I feel like most people will, under pressure, they fall back on what they're comfortable with. Um, and people are comfortable with largely the things that they play in pub games a lot. Alright, yeah, so... Yeah, it's coordination. Exactly, it's just coordination. Um, uh, so, because this went so much longer, we didn't really get to delve much into the whole playstyle thing, so... Um, I think we'll leave. I can't keep on going. <laughs> well, going uh, up? Um, uh, I'm getting a bit exhausted from the. Uh, uh, I've got other things to do too, but um, yeah. So uh, I thought maybe each one of us could bring up maybe a two or three different asset, like a progression of assets that we might buy in a typical public terrain control game. So uh, I'll start okay. off. I'll give you an example. So I might start off in the Mithras Bravo um, because it's you know tier one and gets the uh, really big C bill multiplier, and so it's a good way to ra uh, rack up some early uh, C bills. And that's the one with the one heavy medium laser, two heavy small lasers, and the two uh, advanced tactical missile, three uh, high explosive launchers. Uh, and it also has a um, uh, anti-battle armor uh, point defense cannon thing on it or point defense system uh, I love starting out with that It my, the asset that I build after that is very much dependent upon how much I, uh, how, many, how much I make whether I die uh, as that um, uh, that Mithras it, frequently I don't die because I get ignored because Mithras's people will go oh it's just a Mithras whatever and then they get killed by it um, and so and if I do die, then uh, I'll typically come back in a uh, small medium or uh, maybe one of the more advanced uh, light mechs. Uh, and if I'm really lucky, then I'll be popping into a Thanatos or something like that. Um, so yeah, that's that's one of my playstyles. Uh, how about you all? Very hard for me to come up with a build order because I try to make like I kind of make a point of buying like different assets all the time. Uh, there are like some favorite assets that I that I use a lot. Uh, so probably for starters, probably actually that's where like I'm most diverse in terms of what I choose. But I don't know. Uh, one of my old favorites was like the Osiris Foxtrot, which has improved jump jets, mask six six five. I can't remember. I think it's five ER small lasers, uh, and a streak serum four or six. Sorry, streak six. Uh, I really like that because it kind of does a bit of everything. Uh, it's an Osiris, it's slightly up armored, so it's able to 
tank a little bit more uh, than a lot of other lights. Has 360 torso, improved jump jets and mask, which means that like you're constantly able to break aggro or kind of have a little bit more map presence than other Osiris's. Not as much as like a Saltair, but it's well, just... it's it's better now than it used to be because the uh, the uh, ER small lasers, the bug on them got fixed. Yeah, so it does more damage now. Finally, uh, I don't know. Let's just I really like versatile assets, things that are mobile. Uh, and then yeah, so second buy is also very dependent on like if I wanted to go dive really early in the enemy team. Uh, like, okay, do I see an enemy player that like I don't want them to sit back and farm, so I'm just gonna run in the whole team to kill them. Uh, sometimes I do that, and it's like okay, I'm just gonna go buy Chimera or whatever. Um, whatever I can afford it, like 49k. Other times it'll be like okay, I can just keep on capping points, I can keep on staying alive through a bunch of brawls, and then suddenly I have 80k or 90k or whatever. Uh, I usually go for Shadow Cats, like, in mid-game, because they do a bit of everything. They're a lot of map control, usually put down a lot of firepower, are still useful even if the enemy team had up to early. Um, so Shadow Cat Prime is probably my favorite, or the Bravo of the map, which is the LBX-20. Uh, if the map is, like, kind of more close quarters, like Forsaken, or if that's just where the fight happens to be. And then towards late game, I try to take, like, Usually pretty mobile clan heavies. Thors are probably one of my favorites. I like the Prime a lot now, especially after it got buffed. Uh, the Delta is really, really good on close quarters maps, which is also LBX-20. Um, and the Alpha is a stalwart, which is UAC-10, ER large, ER medium. Actually, one one more, uh, which is new this patch, and I'm always constantly excited for it. Uh, one clan large pulse, one, ga one Gauss rifle, and Greek... Sorry, no. Dual Serum 4 and SRM 6, which is just... Loads and loads and loads of close-range firepower. Plus, you know, a bunch of good skirmishing capabilities, and you have IJJ. It's just beautiful. It does everything you want. And uh, how about you, Kidson? Uh, yeah, I mean, I can literally give you a... If I feel very lazy, I have a very precise way of doing things. Uh, uh, Kid Fox, uh, Echo. Yeah, the LBX-10, three clans, small pulse lasers, and double uh, SRM-4. Uh, it's probably the strongest starter brawler you can grab. The key with it is to not go in first because you're squishy as hell. You stay passive, you, so you let your teammates you know, be your mid shield, and you just dish out disgusting amount of damage with this thing. Um, of course, people that know what's up will, will try to shoot at you, and then you deal with those first. Even though this mech has relatively high tier rating for starters, just the sheer amount of damage it can dish out in a brawls will let you progress really quickly. And, you know, key in that progression is not dying as well. So honestly, sometimes I can just keep in, staying that thing until I jump straight in assault. Uh, if I have like uh, another stop, it's usually at heavies. So with heavy, depending on the map, if it's like more open one, there's nothing that speaks volume as Mad Dog Alpha with the Twin Ghosts. You can often, if you did well in the light, you can often hop into that thing when there are still plenty of lights running around and you just two-shot them. Um, if map is more like city-focused, there's the Thanatos with the... Well, either either Heavy Ghosts or the LBX-20 works fine. It's fantastic brawlers as well. Um, and for assaults, for me, go-to is the Blood Ice B. Echo, I think it's Echo. Other twin class uh, clan girls, double heavy large lasers, uh, some machine guns that you would forget they exist usually. Um, fast clan mech, um, 360 torso, 
just like Maddox actually. Uh, it's it's kind of they share a similar um, thing that they're more of a skirmishers, right? They're, they're not exactly snipers. Uh, at least I, I don't play them like that. I play them as skirmishers where you know you still play objective and whatnot, but you usually stay out of you know frontal fight and and just focus on 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 killing the key assets. Yeah, that's basically how I how I play go to uh, if I want to hard try. And uh, Liko, uh, what sort of um, build order might you go with? Well, for me, it's kind of the opposite of Direwolf, I would say, where my starters are the least diverse. Uh, I choose the Kit Fox Prime or the Uller the, um, Prime, as some would call it, for nearly every first pick of nearly every game, simply because... It is an unbeatable generalist in a 1v1 situation. It's got a tool for every matchup and opponent. It's got enough pitch to shoot back at an early VTOL. Um, you know, I, I could sing its praises and go on about it forever, yeah, but it's a great mech. Deal with, um, LBX to deal with uh, vehicles. Yep. BA vehicles, everything. Um, it's a wonderful mech. Uh, if you give it a try and if you play it a lot, you'll get good at running and fighting at the same time. You'll get good at shooting battle armor underneath your feet with SRMs and um, you know a lot of other important skills. Uh, and you'll get good at managing a lot of weapon groups because uh, you really need to use five weapon groups to make the most of it, in my opinion. Um, and from there, I, you know, I, I try to try everything in the game and enjoy the, all the variety that Living Legends has to offer. So it's hard for me to think of like a typical buy path for myself. I guess what would be typical for most players would be something like jumping to a Chimera or Shadowcat. But for me, I, I try to hold off on upgrading as long as possible to avoid giving more C-Bills to the enemy, and also because I, I really enjoy my Kit Fox Prime. So my, my second buys tend to be heavies, usually. Um, I would say most common would be a, probably a Warhammer, because uh, they're darn cheap. Uh, you can build them at forward bases, and... Uh, you can pull them out early enough that you can really bully some light mechs away from objectives, uh, hold terrain very well. Warhammer Prime gets a shout-out for being uh, basically the same price as a Puma Prime, which is half its weight. <laughs> um, that's a standard and, engine for you. Yeah, that's uh, lovely. The standard engine also just got a buff. Um, and for a third buy... Um, the buff you're speaking of is uh, for uh, the severity of the uh, slowdown when your back torso is shot out, right? Yes, that's correct. Standard engines um, are not penalized as harsh when their back armor gets shot out. Um, a third buy, uh, you know, that's really situational. It depends a lot on whether I would want to go for something more mobile, like a Mad Cat or a Marauder, uh, or whether I want to invest in Assault. Um, at this point, I would say my end game is probably a Thumper Behemoth. The uh, Behemoth Echo has a, the Thumper Cannon, eight Thunderbolt 5s that are a lot of fun to chain fire at people, I hate and you. some medium six. lasers. I hate you. <laughs> is it, wait, isn't it six? Oh, no, sorry, it's six. Six, six, six. T-Bolt 5s. Eight is yeah. the canonical loadout. I get that confused sometimes. Six Thunderbolt 5s. Still very fun. All right, well, I'll do the outro here. Um, thanks all for being here. Uh, this has been Returning to Base, a MechWarrior Living Legends podcast. 
I'd like to give a shout out to Timothy Seals for giving us our intro music and Shavaxi for giving us our outro music. I hope you listen in next time.